You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. Some of you have never had the privilege of, I don't, maybe you have, of uh, remembering how to get somewhere without using directions. Like it's, it's a part of your uh, body and you know how to get there. And because we rely so heavily, and I think this is true if you're driving, particularly you rely on your smartphone for your GPS navigation, that's how you figure things out. Um, not all of us drive, of course. And so you might get an opportunity if you're in a neighborhood that you're familiar with and somebody who isn't familiar with that neighborhood um, approaches you, they might say, hey, how do I get here? And then you can show off your skills about knowing where things are. I get a lot of pride about doing that when I'm wandering around uh, Center City or something like that. And I can tell some like Long Islander or someone is approaching me to ask where something is. And then I can tell them and I feel good about that. The smartphone has robbed me of, a, of, of the opportunity of not only being proud of knowing where I'm going, but also of, of, of humbling myself to ask for directions. Like, I don't ask, I don't pull into random gas stations anymore and ask the attendants and whoever's there, how do I get here? What's going on? Where am I? You know, how do I get to this place? That's, that seems to be gone from the whole society. And there's a problem with that because it makes it hard for us to ask for directions or ask for information that we think we should have. So there's something there that's, uh, there's a missed opportunity there. But then there's also this, this, this expectation that you should know everything all the time because you're powered with a uh, supercomputer in your pocket, which gives you access to like everything we've ever known instantaneously. And so that's a lot of pressure to have it all together and to figure things out. And, 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 and we don't have as much permission then to ask, to study, you could say, but also just to wander about. There's something, that is, uh, there's something that's missing, I think, from our lives. And I, I think the church can be like that sometimes, especially very enculturated places. Um, like maybe ours is, you know, maybe, maybe this is your first time here and there are things that we did that we expected you to know that this is how we do them. Um, and so it might be a little bit uncomfortable then to ask for directions or ask questions, you know. Um, I want to create an environment where, of course, it's okay to ask. And on this Trinity Sunday, which is an odd one, it gives us an opportunity to wonder about this very peculiar and seemingly outdated idea about God's being. So I want to talk about what's the, <laughs> what's the deal with the Trinity? There's my favorite dude up there. Um, it's, it would be a bad beginning to a, a, a comedy routine, but I want to, I want to ask, how does, how does it work? What's, what's going on with this idea? Um, some of you might be familiar with it because of your own like cultural Christianity. I don't think we talk about this idea very much in Circle of Hope. So if you kind of grew up here, you might not have interacted with it at all. So I think it's worth some explanation. So I, I want to I explain what it means and then move into why it matters and why, why, why it could matter to us today. So the basic idea of the Trinity is it's a piece of doctrine that was finalized by about the 4th century 
that describes the nature of God's being. And a lot of the doctrine we subscribe to comes from these early um, councils that happened. We, 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 we would say there were uh, seven ecumenical councils that decided the basics of Christianity, but Catholics would say there were dozens because we haven't, as in, in our tradition, haven't participated in all of them. But these councils gathered church authority together to come up with decisions, magisterial authority, you might say. The authority of the church is the magisterium used to give you the authentic teachings of the church. So you can think of it as like central headquarters that decides what followers of Jesus should believe in. So that's, I know, it's, I'm, not, I'm not exactly being generous with, with them as I say that, but by the, by the fourth century, using a, a chapter 18 of Genesis in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, the magisterium drew some conclusions, I'm highlighting their portions of the text that they referred to that talked about the nature of God. And this all stemmed uh, from the first council of Nicaea, called by uh, Emperor Constantine, the first Christian Roman Empire, 325 AD. And it was the first assembly representing all of Christianity. And its big accomplishment was defining the nature of the Son of God, Jesus, and how Jesus relates to God the Father. This piece of theology eventually influenced the doctrine of the Trinity that holds together, like Brian was saying, that God is three consubstantial persons. Consubstantial, that's not even a word you say in English ever, right? Just making sure no one's saying, don't, don't say consubstantial to anybody, right? Because they're not going to know what you mean. With the same substance, of the same substance, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, one God in uh, three divine persons. The three persons are distinct, yet they are one substance, one essence, one nature. In this instance, nature is what one is, and a person is who one is. And so that's how they're working it out. Different persons, who they are, same substance. That's, that's, that's the idea. And if it sounds complicated, if it sounds like it's a, describing a kind of person or an entity or an idea that you don't understand or can't rationalize, that's a good thing. Because images and language that describe God necess necessarily need to be irrational to our understanding. Right? Because it's describing a different kind of being that can't be reduced down to our understanding. And so that's why I've committed myself to using the early church council's specific language because the, 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 the metaphors that we use fall short. They don't, they, don't, they don't work exactly. So it sounds complicated. It is complicated. And, and it's meant to be a certain explanation of God's, uh, of how God works. And maybe it's best to say it's one image to describe God. Maybe it's not the one you need to master in all of its intricacy, but maybe one that we should know because it could be helpful. Now, it's hard to describe how these ideas, using words that you would never use, 
consubstantial, essence, nature. We don't use that language to describe anything, really, and certainly not anything that's alive. Why would that be helpful? Well, let's start with why it was helpful then. For Jewish people, it was really important for their God to be the only God worthy to be worshipped. Early on, Jewish people were conscious of other gods around them. They didn't necessarily refute their existence. And if you read the Old Testament, you can see references to other gods that seem to be alive, that seem to be interacting with people and have some power of their own, and something mysterious is happening there. So this idea of being a religion of one god wasn't really an expressed idea in the Old Testament. However, you know, because they didn't refute their existence because people interacted with them, people worshipped them, people responded to them. That was the evidence of their existence. Does that make sense? We have a different idea of what existence means, because, but, but the fact that people reacted and responded to them was enough. So rather than thinking of the Old Testament Jewish people as monotheistic or one God would be the idea, you might think of them as um, observing monolatry. That means they're worshiping one God. There's only one God worthy to be worshiped despite there being many gods. Now that's helpful for us to understand because we live in a time and place where there are other gods being worshiped. And I don't just mean other religions, which you might think of. I mean people are treating other things like their God and thus worshiping them. And so we say, no, our God is the one to be worshiped, not, not anything else. Not your, not your career, not your money, not your flag, right? God is the one that we're worshiping, not something else. No one is like our God. Um, God needs to reign supreme over all the other gods. No one's like the God of Israel. That's the idea. We sing that song. Um, it's in Hebrew, I think. Um, but the refrain says something like, uh, who is like you, Right? There is a, no, no one is like you. So there has to be, there's a comparison that makes the, the psalm more beautiful. As opposed to saying, you're the only one. And so that's, I guess that could be beautiful in some sense. But the, the, the interaction, the, the, um, the election, the connection there brings intimacy. So they're committed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, um, and Jacob, and it's in it, their worshiping God as the supreme being. But then the New Testament comes in and introduces other ideas. There's the strong idea of God's spirit in the New Testament and God's son. Okay, so we said there's one God to be worshiped, and now you're talking about other gods. It would seem God's son. Who's the son of God? How does God have a son? Now I'm supposed to worship him. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. What are you saying? We did this whole thing where you said there's only one God to be worshipped, and now you're introducing another idea. Complicated problem, right? If there's one God, why does the New Testament, why do the New Testament writers speak of other ones? So this idea of a triune God has been a way to take these two worldly frameworks, uh, worldviews, you might say, the one found in the New Testament and the Old Testament and make them one so that Jewish people could follow, in, uh, follow Christianity without fundamentally contradicting a main part of how they thought about the world. How do we represent the Son of God as also God without making this into a, a polytheistic religion or a religion that would contradict the, uh, a very deeply held conviction of these people? So from the beginning, this idea 
of the Trinity was always an inclusive idea, a way to hold people together, a way to maintain the importance of a single God being worshipped while also reconciling that idea with the incarnation of Jesus, the descension of the Spirit at Pentecost. This is the Council of Nicaea, and this is uh, uh, one way you can imagine the Trinity. Inclusion is the idea, and so we came up with a particular way to talk about the Trinity. No other one will do, really, because the Trinity is too specific to have a useful way to describe it. We, we, we kind of submit to the language, and then we move on. And so the, the analogies break down. You know, it's not like an egg. Some people say it's like an egg with a shell and a yolk and a, and a, and a white. It's not like that. It's not Neapolitan ice cream. That'd be another. That'd be another popular one, if you're talking to children, I guess, right? It's something else. It's a little confusing. Do you have any questions so far? Just this is. I've never done talk back in the middle of the talk, but we could do that. All right. So you can tell by my sarcastic su comments on the subject. I generally resist imperial uh, church authority and how it how it rains down theology on lesser people like us. That now we're supposed to believe this thing, right? Hoping that we fall in line, right? I have an issue with that. In its time and place, I think it had some purpose. Uh, securing some definitive theology was helpful. But there's something that isn't so good about making sure that everybody who is in the church abides by official expectations. And everyone who doesn't is a heretic. You know, the idea of getting everyone in line explicitly is a problem. You know, we're not that interested in doing that in Circle of Hope. What holds us together is our dialogue of love, we say. That's centered on Jesus. That's how we're held together. You know, it connects us. It gives us gravity. That gravity, that core of us, is what keeps us together. It's not a rule book. It's not a set of doctrines. It's not a set of creeds either. Jesus centers us. And the reason I emphasize this is because I actually think it makes us a more inclusive body. So rather than using walls to protect us, our centeredness on Jesus protects us. You know, there, and there's a, there's a real reason why in the early church this sort, these sort of doctrinal barriers were important in distinguishing Christianity as a distinct movement. But they cemented Christianity as one thing and laid the groundwork for imperial Christianity, which I think overly codified these agreements, making them into tools for state power. So this idea that began to describe the being of God as a way of reconciling different people became a way of making new people. And so you made a culture as opposed to accommodated culture. And what that does to us now is limits our imagination about how to describe God in 2019 because no one thinks of God in the same way that first century Jews or Greeks thought about God right now. You know, the question for the church is how do 21st century people think about things being ontology and then how do we fit God into that framework now? Right? That, that would be an interesting thing to think about, you know, as opposed to using this outdated, um, you know, what is a mode of being anyway? You know, we, we just don't use that kind of language anymore. Um, and so what, what does it look like today to talk about who God is and how God is working? So oftentimes we use those theological statements as tool to, tools to make sure people uh, pass a litmus test and we're not contaminated by them. And so a church has a set of doctrine that you need to abide by in order to get into the church. 
And I think that we think that bad or faulty or the ever, problem, the ever uh, common problematic, you ever hear someone say problematic, it's a very, that's problematic, you're problematic, you know? That, that, that kind of litmus test of figuring out whether you have problems or not, to get in or not. Um, we don't want any problematic people affecting the integrity of the church. And we have the, car, the, the market cornered on a metaphysical abstraction and speculation. We really know how this thing that's way too big for us to grasp, so big that we made up words to describe it, we really know how it works. And if you disagree with us, you're out. There's the door. You're a heretic. I don't really want to do that. Christians that are prepared to draw borders like that are keeping each other out of the church. And I think Christians do that too much to the detriment of the church, but also to the detriment of our mission. So dividing lines make it harder for us to get in, and they make it... Um, make it easier for us to mock other people. And so I want to be generous with this because we weren't always generous and it was a deadly circumstance as a result. And so when I see somebody out of step with my thinking or theology, and my theology is largely orthodox for what it's worth, um, and still claiming to be a Christian, somebody's way out, I'm a Christian still, I still follow Jesus, or I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to figure it out, I, 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 I bring them along. Yeah, you're trying to work it out. You're not hostile. You might have questions, and that's okay. We're all working something big out together, right? I, 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 want, I see somebody who wants to stay in and wants to stay included. And if they don't have all their thoughts sorted or don't necessarily agree with me, I can learn from them and they from me in a way that's more inclusive um, than exclusive. You know, I'm not going to get contaminated by somebody's unorthodox thought. That's not gonna really happen to me or to you. We're working something out together. So what I really wanna say is that um, Jesus keeps us centered and we needn't fear if we're near him. The Trinity is a tool to do that and it can be today, actually. Um, so I'm not gonna go much more into what the Trinity is because it's a fairly inexplicable piece of doctrine, I'd rather think about what the Trinity teaches us about God because I think, I, I, I believe in it, but I, I think it's less useful to consider its doctrinal intricacies and more useful to consider its great communal teaching. So, you know, I'm not that interested in the nuts and bolts of the car. I want to drive the car, right? And I, 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 want us to, I want us to go somewhere. So the tools and the doctrine can be helpful, but I like the, a narrative approach. So maybe the story will help us get there. Um, I'm going to go on for a little bit longer, just to let you know where we are and how this thing is working. Um, this, this guy, Karl Barth, is an influential 20th century theologian. In one place, he called the Trinity... Um, the triune God, an indissoluble subject. God in a threefold repetition. God is represented in a holy tautology. Tautology in grammar is a phrase or an expression in which the same thing is said twice in different words. That sameness, that logic, is like a nice definition, but it doesn't really go far in terms of application. What is a, again, it introduced another word you never say. You know, you don't say tautology. Unless, I mean, I know people that say that and I have a different word to describe them. So, so there's, um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not a very helpful term. 
So I like a social understanding of the Trinity when we begin to think of the Trinity as three, dis as three distinctions with one essence, nature or substance, yes. We can see how they cooperate as different people working on the same mission. Put another way, the Trinity teaches us how to embrace each other in community. You know that whole spiel I gave you about not excluding people based on what they think? The Trinity actually teaches you not to do that because we're working something out together despite uh, being in different modes of being, so to speak. It teaches us how to embrace each other, how to care about each other. You know, Bart said there's a counterpart, a genuine harmonious encounter and a self-discovery, a free existence and a cooperation. An open confrontation in God and reciprocity. That's like community. Sometimes there are open confrontations and also reciprocity. It really is an image of how the, the, the family of God works might be how the family of God works. You see that that blurs, that blurs the distinction between how God works and how we work two together. And I think the church should relate in a way that is seemingly irrational. And I think that's okay. Bart didn't go far enough because he didn't take the idea of God cooperating with diverse expressions of God's self to how we should relate. You know, the, 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 uh, and even as men and women, you know, the old curmudgeon actually used the Trinity to uh, ground the subordination of women to men. That's how far he went. So I don't want to go there. That's not what I'm about. Um, Pope Benedict or uh, Joseph Ratzinger, he was Joseph Ratzinger at the time, then he changed his name to Pope Benedict. That's how it works for some reason. He grounded his theory of the Trinity as a dialogue within God, using this old idea from Augustine, as Brian was saying, how God relates to God is seen best in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In John, Jesus says the Son can do nothing on his own. He is completely open. And we see this openness in the act of self-giving that Jesus demonstrates, and further in the fact of the other, in this case, the Father. That's why Jesus can say something like, the son can't do anything without God, but also says, whoever has seen me has seen the father. Something mysterious is happening there. But I, I know it's complicated, and you might not be tracking with everything that I'm saying, but when you begin to see that God, God that way, giving of the self to the other, Jesus giving himself to God the father, the presence of the other in self too, you can begin to see how it radically cooperates, the, the Trinity cooperates in community. That you might offer yourself to someone else and receive what they have to. That sort of reciprocal relationship. A few more. Wolf says, Miroslav Wolf says, by suggestion that persons I have the right one. By suggestion that persons are never just themselves, but harbor in themselves others to whom they ought to give themselves in love, the two ideas suggest the complex and dynamic understanding of identity. We give ourselves to others in love. So he'll go on to say that God came into the world to make human beings created in the image of God live with one another and with God and the kind of communion in which divine persons live, live with each other. 
he's taking directly this idea. And I, a, a guy named uh, Moltmann and Wolf, they were, Moltmann was the, men, um, the thesis advisor and Wolf was a student. They came up with a new way of imagining the Trinity. And, and one of the reasons I want to mention this is because it isn't captured in the early church's language. It's a new way of thinking about the Trinity. It's a social Trinity saying, this is how God relates to God's self. This is how humankind might relate to humans. So it's, a, it's, it's this uh, movement toward a new way of understanding how this could work together. My point in all of this isn't to define God rather rigidly or to give you some uh, magisterial conclusion that all you need to do is submit to this idea or be pegged a heretic. But I hope I can inspire you to learn God is relating in a communal, familial way where Son is giving himself to God the Father and the other is happening too. That um, mutual way of working um, might inspire you to relate to one another that way. The origin of the Trinity is about reconciling people together that have different ideas about how the world works. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a reconcilia- uh, reconciling idea. And theology gives us language about that reconciliation. It helps us worship God better and know God better. That's the purpose. Both the rationale for a doctrine like the Trinity and also the content of it helps us to do that. They came up with it to hold people together. And the content of the idea shows that God works the same way. You know, the the image alone isn't holy. Our enactment of it is where the holiness happens. So this quotation from Wolf is the long and the short of the discussion of the Trinity for me and also answers how Jesus is trying to save the whole world. You know, the big piece we're going for in Circle of Hope is not just to teach a theology, um, one that's even less doctrinal than it is social, but to actually live it out. So it's not just enough to say, I have a new social understanding of how God works, but to actually put that into practice with one another. Rather than point out that Jesus came to us 2,000 years ago, maybe we can pray and live in a way that shows the world that he's alive now by our own mutuality. What does it mean for us then to uh, operate out of a single essence despite being different persons, right? That, that is a different way of living. That is something different. So I hope we can relate to each other in the same self-giving love in a relational way that makes room for the other, right in us. That means today we cross uh, gender and racial and economic and cultural and religious lines. That's how we're demonstrating the self-giving love that, uh, that, that, tr- that the, the idea of the Trinity holds together. And I think if we can be that kind of circle of hope, we will really show the world the love and embrace of, of God and even do some teaching about the Trinity. So. There was a lot of content there, but we'll stop it there. And if you have any questions or comments or uh, feedback, let's, let's have some dialogue. Let's pray before we get there. Thank you, Lord, for being here and for giving us um, mysterious things to think about that might um, stimulate our minds and, our, and, and activate our bodies to act in a way um, that is similarly mysterious, maybe to the onlooker or maybe to someone else. But I, I pray that we can relate with the same self-giving love that you've demonstrated 
with one another so that people can, can imagine something different is happening, something that isn't quite so rational, so that they might stop and ask us for uh, directions or we might do the same with them. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.